Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you again this week. It's been a few weeks since we've uh, all been together and uh, we missed you, listeners. I hope you missed us. You know, summertime in an election year is always uh, a bit of a mixed bag. And I think certainly this year, since the primary election, it's been somewhat quiet in terms of Oklahoma government and politics, aside from the usual, you know, partisan, uh, you know, feces throwing, right? Buffalo chipping. And, uh, and then a lot of audits. There's been, there's a lot of investigation going on around this administration and several of the appointees. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. We'll also talk about the interim studies that have been uh, proposed and, well, I guess, approved. And uh, and just kind of give a little, just a catch up. I don't even know, we don't have a firm agenda for this. So we're going to, we're going to ramble together. Joining me, of course, are my two co-hosts, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hello. I, I feel like I should introduce myself and thank you guys for welcoming me on the pod. I haven't been here in like, like feels like forever. So I feel like a, I feel like a guest, not even a host. Yeah. Scott went on vacation. I went on vacation. Bailey's been out of town. Um, this is our first chance to be together still virtually, right? Because we, we have boundaries. That's why we don't record on vacation. Or we like to think we have boundaries. Uh, and yes, and Bailey Perkins, right? He is here, of course. Hello, Bailey. Hey, Andy. Hey, y'all. Good to see you. And uh, so let's start, Bailey, with all the audits. Um, I, By my count, there's at least three, I think, rather significant, we'll say audits or investigations that are going on. Um, perhaps most notably is the news this week that the federal government is we'll say clawing back, right? Uh, roughly $653,000 of the the COVID, the federal COVID relief money that we received. But specifically towards education. So there were multiple pots of funds of COVID dollars dispersed across the country to different levels of governance. And some of them had earmarks towards certain expenses right so some things like were towards broadband and some have pandemic relief funding for um counties and cities and the state receive funds and so there's a pot of funds that was supposed to help um reduce um hardships from the pandemic related to our educational system and apparently there were millions of dollars that the federal government felt was misspent um, by the state administration. And they were doing audits and they said, what, Andy, at least, was it 650,000 of it has to at least at least be returned from not being spent in the way that aligned with the guidelines that federal policy allowed them to spend those monies with. Yeah, and in, in, I think in, in all fairness, the way that it, they said was like, from the audits they've done, you got to pay us back $653,000, but there's still like another five and a half million that auditors haven't looked at that could contain additional unauthorized pur purchases. And this is the deal. I'm sure we talked about it when it happened, right? It was the Bridge the Gap program, Bridge the Gap Digital Wallet. It's one of uh, Stitt and Ryan Walter's programs. And 
this is where people received the $1,500 and used it they to were buy. buying TVs yeah. and all kind of things that weren't exactly helping to bridge the digital divide in education, right? They were just fluffing pockets of certain families and adding cool stuff that was erroneous to, to developing, you know, their uh, education. And you know, it's wild. I forgot about this, that the state didn't even spend all the money. They returned like almost 3 million, I think like $2.9 million they sent back because th it was unused. And it really, I mean, it breaks my heart and it honestly chaps my hide because I know that there are tens of thousands of Oklahoma students and families who could have definitely used this money for good. Our schools definitely need this money to provide the education. I mean, just a few years ago that we were seeing pictures of ripped up, torn textbooks of, you know, our teachers still have to buy their own classroom supplies in many cases. Like we need this money and for it to be one misspent and two sent back uh, is just offensive i think to to me and to most oklahomans and andy correct me if i'm wrong but those funds also didn't go to children in the traditional public school system right i believe it went to children in certain private schools and maybe uh charter i don't know about charters but i, I remember that some of those that that money went to private school children who went to private school right and so part of the audit here uh found that that what the the administration had said happened isn't what happened. They had said, oh, well, this is all on the platform, the digital wallet thing, their platform, class wallet. You know, they didn't um, tell us everything. Well, it was shown that Education Secretary Ryan Walters just gave blanket approvals, said, okay, well, anything people buy from any of the approved vendors, and the vendors were like Office Depot, Home Depot, right? Stores that sell millions of products. Yeah, whatever they buy from there is fine. And that class wallet came back and said, it's not our fault. Like we told them and the state did not use all of the uh, like oversight functionality like of the platform. And so it seems like there's uh, someone was a little bit derelict in their duties here and didn't do their, their just weren't paying attention, weren't doing their due diligence to make sure that these funds were being used correctly. It well, it seems like, like the, oh, go ahead. It, it seems like what happened is that they saw this as an opportunity to try and to to try and kind of do a proof of concept, right? Um, Governor Stitt and Secretary Walters are both big proponents of uh, voucher programs and kind of trying to um, find ways to funnel public dollars into private education. Um, and and what they were trying to do here was show that, oh, they can use this program class wallet and it's going to work so great. And we've used this with COVID release funds. It works really well. It's easy to use. So when we try to get a voucher program passed, like Senator Treat did this year, class wallet is one of the platforms that we're going to use to try and make this, this possible um, to distribute vouchers to, to, families um, and what they didn't count on is that um even though they don't seem to care how taxpayer funds are used other people do care how taxpayer funds are used uh, and they they didn't anticipate that someone would um come back and say oh hey uh that 15 18 whatever you know, however many million millions of dollars it was uh that we gave you um we need receipts 
right? <laughs> like we need, we need, we need to see the receipts and it is, it's very damning. And it's just, I mean, you know, I think it's very, uh, it's, it's very typical what we've seen of the state administration, right? Like, like nothing is their fault. The Swadley's contract. Oh, that's not the government. That's not our fault. We didn't do that. Right. The class wallet situation. Oh, that's not our fault. We didn't do that. Right. The, you know, the commissioners of the land. Oh, that's not our fault. Like we did, you know, it's, it's kind of deflection, attempts to deflect um at 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 every turn um you know from from the guy from the guy who ran uh as the ceo kind of the buck the buck stops with me uh it seems like the buck always seems to land somewhere else uh when it comes to the governor not the buck not the buck i'm not the buck you're looking for well um speaking of uh people who are being dodgy around money the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, OSBI, uh, announced that they are uh, launching an investigation into the Commissioners of the Land Office, um, CLO, which is, I think, one of those state agencies that most people don't know exists, but is deeply important. They oversee $2.5 billion in real estate and other um, state-owned properties and business um, that supports public education. And what happened there is that the internal auditor at that agency, which is good they have one, it's two and a half billion dollars. You need someone to make sure things are happening correctly, um, got fired because allegedly they um, identified some uh, conflicts of interest between the agency director and his role with a a private capital firm and some real estate investment, um, similar to what we heard about. Um, this is, is, I think, eerily similar to how we've heard about things happening with Swadley's and some of the other stuff. Uh, and so the the commissioners of the land office, you know, at first said, "Oh, this is not the case," and it looks like the the director of that agency, uh, Elliot Chambers, that he fired the auditor um the, the the commissioners so the commissioners who are the commissioners of the land office raised questions specifically so the commissioners of the land office it's the governor the lieutenant governor the secretary the state superintendent of education and there's there's a, the there's a couple more of the audit yeah um and so secretary hoffmeister or excuse me superintendent hoffmeister in her role uh brought up questions about uh the fact that the auditor had been let go after this this whistle blowing and that's kind of what started this whole that's what started this whole deal so it was the it was the commissioners who who are the commissioners of the CLO uh yeah. they're the ones that that kind of started this process after uh the secretary of the of the CLO let go the internal auditor yeah, that's exactly right. And so um, they ask state auditor, the governor asked state auditor, Cindy Burr, do the investigation. She said she can't because she's also a commissioner and there's a conflict of interest, which is, it's nice that the auditor's like, there's a conflict of interest about your conflict of interest. So I have to step aside. So um, district attorney David Prater stepped in and is doing the investigation. And um, it's interesting because, I mean, there's still several months before the election and before his term is up, but David Prater is not running for re-election. So there's the potential here that if this doesn't get wrapped up before he leaves office, that whomever is the new DA would take over, which could be Kevin Calvey. 
right? And that changes the dynamic dramatically. Now, if, if Vicky Behenna wins, I think the investigation will likely continue how it is. But certainly if, if uh, Commissioner Kevin Calvi wins, it's going to either disappear or change directions, I would think. Who knows? Well, listeners, as you hear from candidates um, during, especially because Commissioner Calvi um, in his race for DA, there's a runoff. So he's currently campaigning. That's a great question to ask of those who are running for DA of where they stand on this investigation and would they continue the investigation should they be elected as DA. Sorry, my couldn't get to my mute button there. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, Bailey, that those are the kinds of questions that people need to be asking candidates, right? I think I think a lot of voters, I think we just kind of assume, you know, politicians happen and we pick the one in the ballot box. But there's a lot of conversations that can and should happen before that. I remember from a very personal example when our city council member um, from where I live, James Cooper, here in Oklahoma City, when he was running for office, I had met him previously and had a chance to talk to him before he's ever running. So I kind of knew him a little bit, but my wife didn't. And she asked me who I was voting for. And I said, I was going to, I was going to vote for, uh, for James Cooper. And I asked her and she's like, I don't know anything about these candidates. And one day I came home and he was knocking doors and was at our house. And so I sat in my car for a second. I could see him chatting and I was going inside and he was running out to his car because my wife had asked him a question. And he said, I've got that in a binder. And he went to his car to go get the information to show her. And I was, I don't remember what the question was. I wish I did, but I was like, good for you, you know, wife for asking questions of candidates and, and making them answer. Right. And don't just be like, okay, nice to meet you. Well, they seem friendly uh, or not, but actually like holding their feet to the fire and being like, you need to earn my vote a little bit. Doesn't matter what the letter behind the name is. We should always be asking all of the candidates That's questions right. and find out where they stand. Right. Exactly. Did uh, should we should we talk about the um, the new Panasonic factory that's coming to Oklahoma? That's going to um, so many jobs. Um, we were at like, the one yard line. We were we were at the one yard line. The legislature got it done, and so uh, uh, I I assume the governor closed the deal. But then I left the country for a while on vacation. So do you guys do you guys know what's the latest? <laughs> eh, wrong. <laughs> what? What? It, we are standing at the edge of Project Ocean, staring into the abyss. Is what's happened. Well, we're looking at our neighbor to the north oh, as yeah. they prepare to get the facility. So um, the state of Kansas was able to secure um, the contract with Panasonic. Um, and then there's a number of discussions as to why uh, Panasonic chose Kansas over Oklahoma. So from I hear that the, the package uh, was more suitable um, for Panasonic than Oklahoma offered. I've also heard that some of the social issues that Oklahoma has faced also uh, played a role into Panasonic selecting Kansas over Oklahoma. So um, yeah, so there's $700 million that the legislature has to decide whether or not they want to 
keep that as a pot of funds for uh, economic development opportunities or if they want to use those dollars to put back into the general revenue coffer to invest in in the state so, I've got an so idea. they could they could give some of that money maybe just a million dollars not very much to uh, an Oklahoma-based nonprofit that promotes civic engagement and voting. That's my that's my idea. That's that's a great pitch. Uh, yeah, you, you should send them the you should you should send them the send them the pitch deck. Um, um, you know, Bailey, I I was gonna ask. So, what have you what have you heard about this? Because there is that there has been kind of these rumblings. Like, did Panasonic did Panasonic bail um, because of you know some of the abortion bills, some of the some of the voting bills, some of critical race theory. You know there was those 10, 15 uh, legislators who you know uh, uh, basically said we don't want Panasonic and their you know woke you know ideology coming here. Um, but I guess my question is like when it comes to these kinds of things. Is Kansas really that much more progressive than Oklahoma? I know that they have a Democratic, uh, their governor, governor is a Democrat, um, which which does you know maybe maybe make a difference because she she right they have a, yeah. a she can she can you know of course veto you know uh, uh, stuff if she needs to. It's not they don't have one party control, um, but I guess that's my question: is on some of these kind of social policy uh, issues. Is Kansas that much different than us? Maybe I think just enough. I think you posed this question to Bailey. Scott, I'm sorry, Bailey. I just jumped in front of you. Go ahead. No, you're good. I would say Oklahoma has been more vocal than other states in trying to prove its conservativeness, right? Um, From transgender bathroom legislation and efforts to prevent, you know, the federal government from telling us what to do to uh, passing um, numerous abortion bills that we've talked about in previous um, sessions of, of, of Let's Pod This, um, trying to make Oklahoma one of the most restrictive places in the country to have an abortion, right? We're constantly in the news in a different way than other states are. They may be conservative, but they may not be going that extra mile to have the headlines of we're not woke. We love America. We love freedom. We love guns in the way that Oklahoma has done, especially of recent years. Um, And even just the style of this governor, right? He loves to be seen in in the national news. Um, it's always been rumored that there was um, interest of him to run for larger office. So Oklahoma has been in the headlines a lot on a lot of social issues. And there have been good things done in our state, even over the past couple of years, that I feel like have been overshadowed by some of those um, social headlines, right? And so I do think that that does play a role because when it comes to economic development, it's not just about the dollar amount and who can offer the most, but it's about can you offer a place where employees want to live, right? What's the reputation of schools, right? Because when you tear public conversations about schools in Oklahoma, it's never good, right? right? And especially you hear the public conversations about the debates between 
the legislature and our public school systems and other things. You know what I'm saying? And so I think all of those things do play a factor. I mean, we know, we know this was an issue. Now I'm going to say from the get go, I don't know for, I mean, for a whole bunch of reasons, I don't know that we were ever, uh, Oklahoma in general, Tulsa specifically was ever a serious candidate for, uh, you know, the Tesla factory, you know, there was this rumor that it was, you know, you know, uh, uh, Tulsa down to, to, or, or Austin. I, I, I don't know that there was ever really much of a competition there, but, um, Last time I talked to Elon, he said he said there wasn't. But um, you know, I I do think that part of the reason there was never much serious discussion is because of what you're saying, Bailey. I mean, like we've heard um, that that some of these companies, like <clears throat> their employees, some of them want to come live in in you know the Southern Plains because of the low taxes and uh, you know l- lower taxes and and Kansas uh, and cost Oklahoma of are very similar yeah. in that front, right? Um, but but they don't they 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 don't love a lot of these you know and we myself included we tend we tend to call them like social issues I think that's what we've what we've we've largely tended to call them but really you know when we're talking about this stuff, I, I think really it's, it's more like human rights issues, right? Like when we're talking and quality about quality of like, life, right. Um, you know, when we're talking about like transgendered persons, even when we're talking about abortions, it's, it is quality of life, but it's, it's human rights um, more even than it is like, you know, cultural or, or social issues. And so um, I think you're probably right. I, it wouldn't shock me at all. Um, if that was part of why Panas- Panasonic um, decided, not, decided not to come here. I also have heard um, that, that, the Kansas governor and, and I apologize, her name escapes me. It sounds like she put in, I mean, she put in like a lot more legwork. Um, she had made several trips um, out West. She had had several meetings with the head of the company. Um, it sounds like this, this deal of them moving to, to their factory to, to Kansas or opening a factory in Kansas um, has been a long time coming. It's kind of the impression I've gotten from some of the stuff I've read. I don't know if we, we're trying to jump in at the last minute and, and offer a better incentive package or whether this was a like, Hey, let's play the two off each other. We'll get Oklahoma to offer us something and see if we can get a better deal from Kansas. I don't, I don't know, but <clears throat> it does seem clear that if we want, if we want to be competitive um, for these kinds of things, um, it's going to have to come down to, especially now, more than just dollars and cents. Um, so while I was on vacation, I read a, a great book. Um, highly recommend. Um, it's uh, it's called "The Man Who Broke Capitalism," um, and this is a. It's not a bio. It's not. It's not a biography of his whole life, but it's. Um, it is uh, a biography uh, of the the man Jack Welsh, who uh, was the CEO of General Electric from two thousand from nineteen eighty one to two thousand and one, and how a lot of the practices that have over the last. 30 years become really, really common in corporate America. He, he pioneered a lot of them and how one of his, like, if you want to call it an innovation, um, he was really one of the first guys to look at the balance sheet of the company and see employees. And instead of seeing employees as an asset for companies to cultivate and invest in to, instead of that, see labor as a cost, um, and that the way to improve your balance sheet is not investing in your employees to improve productivity, et cetera, et cetera. It's to see labor as a cost and do everything you can to minimize costs. And if that means you cut jobs, you cut jobs. If you move factories, you move factories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, really just all about the bottom line. It was, it was, the book is really good, but it was very dark for the first 75% or so. Um, but they do talk about how, um, and 
an increasing number of companies they certainly they look at they look at the fiscal implications when they're making decisions about where to build factories or where to hire people or where to move their headquarters you know they they look at all of those things but they are increasingly taking into consideration what their employees want and they're taking into consideration what the public wants too right there is a reason that major chains you know target or you know the big department stores or walmart even like there's a reason these stores um are are doing things like participating in pride month why they're being much more active in february during black history month they're like they're they're not just doing it because they've decided it's the right thing to do right they understand that that's that's in many ways where um public opinion is and is continuing to move and and they factor that into their their other decisions as well well and scott they're finally realizing that there is economic value to catering to your entire base or your broad base, right? Like there is value of ensuring that there is representation in your product. Like it can make good dollars and cents. And I mean, in the context of, you know, Panasonic, CNBC just announced, was that last week, a few days ago, that Oklahoma was ranked um, one of three worst states to live in and being low for business, right? So those types of headlines, um, and, and it's not even just the headline, right? When you look at the disparities that exist, right, in the economy, right, of how we have among the lowest unemployment rate in the country, but we still have so many people struggling. So we got a lot of people working, but they're not making enough to make ends meet, right? Um, when you're looking at health disparities, when you're looking at um, transportation access. I'm sure there are other places that beat out Oklahoma and it's evident by these different rankings and the narrative that gets out. And so that's something that if Oklahoma wants to be a competitive state, we have to do the work to ensure that we're investing in its people and the things that the people want. And the people want folks to be able to earn a living wage, right? They want to have um, strong quality of life, but also to your point, Scott, the people want to ensure that human rights are protected for their neighbors. That's another important American value that we have to do better at because right now the perception is, is that Oklahoma is not a place that values everybody. And why would a global company bring thousands of people here knowing that some of their employees aren't going to be welcomed here? Do you guys ever get the feeling that Oklahoma just tries too hard to be like, we just, we want, we want to be cool. We want to be likable so hard. And, and we often, I think, Scott, to your point, like probably get into this, these things late, right. Or we are unexpectedly used um, so that this company can get a better deal for another state. But it just feels like so often, like when Tesla was, was, you know, supposedly talking about coming again, I think it was pretty clear afterwards they were not actually looking at Oklahoma, that they were just using us. But when they like painted Elon Musk's face on the golden driller, I was like, really? Do you think that's the way to attract somebody? And it makes me think of like, you know, when when you're out dating and someone is like so into you, they're just falling over themselves trying to get your attention and it's a bit of a turnoff. You're like, okay, I need you to calm down and like, just be cool. And Oklahoma is just, we struggle with that sometimes. 
And I hope that because it's not about surface level things. And I and I hope that's where yes. as a state we you know it, it clicks for us to be able to move in a more forward direction that they don't want to see, you know, the shallow aesthetics. They want to know, you know, will their employees have safe places for their kids to go to school, right? Like can the women who work in their organization have childcare? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, those are the things that, that matter to families and, and hopefully, you know, we'll not only make investments in those areas, but spend more time talking about those things that people care about instead of wokeness and cancel culture and some of those other things that we think people really care about, but are more divisive than we realize and will lead to hurting us from a business standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it makes me think of a quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the author writer that says, um, who you are speaks so loud. I cannot hear what you say. Right. And I think Oklahoma and some of our uh, elected officials should reflect on that, right. That you can't just, you can't just sweet talk and bamboozle a multi-billion dollar company into building a $700 million or I mean a multi-billion dollar factory here, right? Like they're going to come and they're going to build in the place that values people that values them, a place that gets it, that it is ingrained in the ethos of the state. And I'm afraid that our current ethos at this point in history doesn't make us competitive. It does not make us competitive. And I can't, I honestly can't think I've been sitting here as we've been talking, trying to think of any major, you know, household name level corporation that is based in Oklahoma, right? Scott mentioned Target earlier, which is based up in Minnesota. I mean, Panasonic is based in another country, but you've got obviously a bunch in California and Texas and New York and Florida. Um, And maybe the only one that comes to mind is Paycom. And that's still a relatively new company, really. And I don't know that they're household name level, right? Like we know them. Maybe they are now because the Paycom arena with so NBA fans might know them, but it's, I I think if we are looking to attract a company to even build a secondary headquarters here or a big factory, going to take a hard look at who we are and how that reflects uh, our values. All right. Well, um, also, I just want to say one side note about Kansas. Another leg up they have over us is that they um, have online voter registration, which Oklahoma also does not have. And they, there was a, a really good article this week in Oklahoma Watch from Keaton Ross that talks about the fact that it's been seven years since then state senator, now Mayor David Holt, filed a bill to create uh, an online voter registration process, and still it does not exist. I can do a lot of stuff online. I can pay my taxes. I can, I can look up, I can look at my ballot. I can request an absentee ballot. I can do all these things, but I cannot register to vote. Well, Andy, we're not even talking about voting itself online, right? Which many states have options of vote by mail and other things. We're just talking about simply allowing people to register. Right. And so it is interesting that after seven years of having legislation related to that, that that 
issue hasn't moved forward. And I wonder too, with all of the concern and question about election integrity that has happened, you know, warranted or not, you know, does that hinder progress on areas of like online voter registration, you know, Mm -hmm. because there is this question out there of elections not being legitimate and we need to do what we need to do to protect systems. But voter registration online in other places have proven, you know, to be safe and effective ways to create more access. So, I mean, if Kansas can do it, surely we can do it, right? They, in fact, um, according to the the Oklahoma Watch article, when Kansas implemented online voter registration, they like basically saw a double in the number of people who were registering to vote because it was so much easier, right? You talk to anybody under the age of like 35, having the idea of you got to print out a form is like, nope, okay, I'm not going to do it, right? Like just can't do it. And the closest thing we have is if you are currently registered and you move within your county, you can update your address within the system, right? Um, But that's the closest thing that we have to online voter registration. Right. Or we have systems, you know, tools where you can go online to register, including actually the election board does this, as does Rock the Vote and Vote.org and a bunch of national resources. You can go online to register and like fill out the form like you'd fill out any online form and then it just puts the information into a pdf and you have to print it or it emails it to you and you have to print it and then sign it and mail it in which is which, still pointless of having the opportunity for people to fill out an online form right no it's super frustrating to spend all the time and get to the end and be like okay now print it it's like well what the hell was i doing man like you could have told me that up front and the reason for this now the election board is like it's not our fault we've done everything we can it's not us. It's, you know, it's on OMES and it's on the Department of Public Safety because they say they don't have the like connection set up so that they can verify that you are who you say you are. So when you register to vote, you have to use your driver's license or state ID or social security number, right? As an identifying number. And they have to check that against some database. And I'm like, well, hang on, but you can buy insurance in the federal marketplace you can pay your taxes, all these things that also have to require sensitive information. Yeah. And have to validate your identity and they all work and they, all these things have figured it out. Right. And you can even, uh, I mean, to run political related ads on Facebook, you got to verify your identity. There's lots of things that do this, but the technology out, exists. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You don't have to even reinvent the wheel. It shouldn't take seven years. When Andy, earlier in the podcast, um, we said that there's, you know, with the, with the million dollars idea that you had, there's $699 million left that the legislature has that they could invest that we're not investing in, you know, the Panasonic deal. So why can't we put some dollars towards modernizing uh, the systems with uh, DPS and, and others to be able to get that technology in place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be a while to see what happens. Uh, I know Senator Julia Kurt ran a bill on this last year that I don't think got heard. Um, and I, according to the article, she plans to run a bill again on this. You know, it's, there's some value in at least pushing it forward. She tried to set a date, like a requirement date that they have it in place. You know, like we, we don't want them to procrastinate. Maybe let's set a due date so they can get it done. But if we don't put a due date, 
will have a situation that's very similar to the real ID, right? Right. Oklahoma literally waited till the ninth hour to get real ID in place. And then it became cumbersome and expensive and, and people are still having issues to this day, right? (laughs) A number of other states who have implemented online voter reg have saved millions of dollars, right? Because you don't have to print so many pieces of paper. You don't have to have someone type that in. Think about that. When you register to vote, you have to handwrite a form or type it and then sign it and mail it in, which means someone has to open the envelope, unfold the form, read my chicken scratch handwriting, type it into the database, then mail them a voter card. Like it's a lot of, it's a very labor intensive process with lots of opportunities for errors in there. We hear all the time about people who aren't registered, who thought they filled out a form and how can you be verified if you miss a letter or a a nine looks like a zero or whatever, right? Yeah, one of my friends in college registered to vote and uh, when he got his voter reg card, he did it when he got his driver's license when he moved here. Um, and the the voter reg card, his name was Brian, but his card said brain, right? Like they transposed the A and the I. And he was like, oh, well, now what do I do? I was like, well, you got to re-register and you have to you know, do it again. And he was like, well, it's not my fault. Like he typed it out correctly or he wrote it correctly. It's his name. Clearly someone made a, a simple human error but that error wouldn't have happened if we had online voter reg because he could have typed it himself and then quickly fixed it, right? And so it's just those kinds of things are... And even having a verify page, right? To where you put in the information that says, yeah. are you sure? Does everything look good? And then hit yeah. click, you know, it does make it easier to where you don't even have to have somebody manually putting information to a system, right? Yeah. It, it does create some efficiencies in the way that we do things in our systems. That's right. That reminds me, I'll tell you a... Uh, a bit of an embarrassing anecdote. This week, I was scheduling a meeting with a couple of colleagues in other states, and one of them had sent me his Calendly link, right? Like I use Calendly to people can schedule appointments with me. It's super helpful. And he sent it. And so I was scheduling on behalf of me and somebody else. So I type in my email address, I type in my colleague's email address, and I hit send, and there wasn't a confirmation. And once it sent and it popped up and said, okay, like you're scheduled, I realized I had uh, transposed two letters in my own email address. And so I, that meant I didn't get the mem- the meeting invite for the meeting. I was like, shoot. So I had to email the guy and be like, hey, uh, I'm real sorry, but could you forward me the invite that I just, that I know I just signed up for? Because I made a mistake. Uh, that was the first time that's happened, but I was like, man, I feel so foolish. It happens. It happens. All right. Well, Bailey, uh, maybe let's talk about Scott for listeners. Scott has left us. He had another appointment. So he is uh, logged off from the podcast for today. So it's just Bailey and I, which is, I mean, it's probably twice as intelligent and at least three times as attractive now, I think. So let's talk about uh, some of the interim studies that are going to be heard over the next several months. Uh, again, there's another, there's actually another Oklahoma Watch article about this that is pretty helpful. They don't highlight many of them, uh, five or six, I think, that uh, that Keaton Ross had caught his eye. But there are, I don't know, 83 in the House and 
like 63 or 68 in the Senate, I think. So and all of the interim studies in the House side were approved by the speaker. And um, sometimes there are years where there may be 10 to 15 studies that aren't approved by the speaker. But this year, um, he allowed all of the ones that were requested to be um, to be officially interim studies. Yeah, which um, and just for listeners who may be new, welcome. If you don't know what an interim study is, it's a study that occurs in the interim between legislative sessions. They do not result in any formal recommendations or policy. It's really a, a literal study. Yeah. Legislators, basically the author, the uh, requester, that legislator gets to invite whomever they want to be the speakers to come and speak before the committee and to share information. So like I have spoken at a couple um, related to government transparency and transparency in the budget process and open records act, open meeting act stuff. And I was invited to come by a, a member of the legislature. I was also there for one about HIV education mandates in public schools. And I participated in one last year related to the grocery sales tax yeah. exemption. Yeah. So it's a good experience. I think it's a great opportunity for the legislature to receive some expert feedback from outside the Capitol. Ideally. And Andy, to be fair as well, who is considered an expert to speak on topics is also dependent upon the legislature that is hosting the interim study. Not all interim studies are always objective, right? right. Sometimes they do bring to the table the people that they trust for information, um, for insight about an issue. Um, now, and that's not every interim study, that, that, but that is the reality that some of them may not have all of the people impacted by an issue at the table exploring and doing a deep dive, right? Um, but then there are some who will bring, you know, a number of voices to the table who, you know, would impact an issue if they were to run a bill on it, right? Mm -hmm. Because what they don't want to happen is the lawmaker to run a bill and then outside group on an issue says, whoa, 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 that's going to be a problem. Here's how it's going to hurt me. And that group works to attack their bill to kill it, right? And so they want to do that work in the interim to, to figure out what kinds of questions will they be asked? What types of things do they need to think about when drafting language on a specific issue? You know, what are those hurdles and opportunities that can come down the lines and make sure that they're going in with um, insight as they go into that next legislative session feeling prepared on running a certain bill. Yeah. Often the bills do become a, or often the studies become uh, a bill, right? And so it can be a helpful way to get an information that would lead towards something. And often it's tough to tell just based on the title of the study. Like, you know, I'm just scrolling through one of them here from Cindy Munson uh, in the house is the topic is wrongful criminal convention convictions. Okay. But there's another one that just says nursing profession and one that just says insurance. So it's not always easy to tell exactly what it is. However, on the websites, house and Senate websites, you can click on the study, like the number, and it gives you some 
uh, like explanatory comments about what it is. And that usually is a way to help, uh, I guess, find out a bit more about what they're really looking for. As you said, not all studies are objective. Sometimes they are fishing, right, for a specific answer. Uh, and they're they're soliciting input that feed into that. And I think often it's like a, can be like a gesture, right? That legislators will request or hold an interim study so that some of their colleagues can then hear the information that maybe they already know, right? It's like inviting a witness that you know is going to testify on behalf of your client. And also then often, I think during, you know, debate and questions on the, on the floor during session, you will hear people say, or especially in committee presentations, right? Like this bill, we had an interim study last year. This is the result of it. So that it kind of builds the case that this isn't, you know, that that bill isn't just appearing out of thin air that they've been doing research. And in many cases, there may be multiple interim studies over a series of years because they want to dig into it more. In fact, a good example about that is managed care where they had a lot of committee hearings to kind of gather information. Um, often they will solicit um, insight or information from even national groups like the National um, the National Council of State Legislatures, right? Uh, NCSL, they're a great uh, clearinghouse of information for state legislatures, nonpartisan and really helpful. Uh, for example, they provide information about government transparency and, and budget processes to kind of help paint the picture for how Oklahoma compares to other states. So I always look forward to it, um, mostly because I'm curious about these things. And also sometimes there's interim studies are developed based on current issues, right? So when there's a school shooting that happens, you may have interim studies on school safety and reforms, right? Um, whenever there's a situation that happens in some community. So for example, um, Senator Stanridge has an interim study that's focused on examining the needs for creating a legislative task force for OTA. There is a huge and contentious discussion about toll roads in Norman. So there was a potential of building a toll road that would have taken out um, certain residential areas and others and just really changed some parts of Norman that have been there for decades that residents are angry about, right? And so because that is a contentious issue, there's a study related to that topic, right? And so um, there's a whole range from education to healthcare uh, to pension reforms to criminal justice uh, there's one on nonprofit governance and divorce and child custody concerns, right? And so that's one thing I do love about this interim study process. It also helps you understand what issues are priorities to lawmakers, right? And what kinds of issues have their attention. Yeah. So there, I was just looking through these. And as I said, the titles don't always tell you much. So there's one from Representative David Smith entitled um, Products Made in Oklahoma and Sold in Oklahoma. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that's about. So I clicked on it and the comments say funeral caskets designed and manufactured in Oklahoma to be sold in Oklahoma and that the Oklahoma Funeral Board will be speaking. That's all it says. And I was, so now I'm like even more curious about, well, 
what is it about the caskets that we're going to be talking about? Is there some kind of benefit I'm not aware of to our state? Is it hurting our state that we manufacture our own caskets? I don't know. Um, but I would have never guessed. That's a very specific, <laughs> very specific topic. Absolutely. So, I mean, there are others that are just that specific. I think Senator Coleman has one about direct ship alcohol. <laughs> so that is an interesting topic, right? That's a so, big deal because right now you can't, like under our current law, you can't order wine or anything online and have it shipped to you, right? Or did that change last year? There was a few changes due to legislation passed related to um, like during COVID, right? Oh, uh, because one of the biggest items for restaurant sales was alcohol sales. And if people aren't eating at restaurants, then they're not able to purchase alcohol there, which was really harming restaurants. And so there was legislation that was more carrier related for certain mixed beverages and they had to be packaged a certain way and all of that. But I don't know that the issue of shipping alcohol was changed. So, yeah. Bailey, I just realized on the Senate website, you can't click on the study number and read the request form. That's only on the House side. So on the on the Senate side, you're just left with the title. Like this one's called A Look at Service Oklahoma Economics. One of them is called Day Workers in quotes, quote, day workers, a.k.a. traveling cowboys. But I don't know what that's about. Hmm. Well, it's a great opportunity that if something does pique your interest, listeners, to reach out to that senator's office to talk to their executive assistant uh, to get more information about what that study looks like or, you know, who they potentially want to bring to the table to, to weigh in on that issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Bailey, anything else you want to talk about today before we go? I was just going to say one interim study I'm excited about is we're going to do a landscape assessment on the SNAP program this year. So that is one interim study that I'm looking forward to with Representative Pay and Representative Munson. So Excellent. There is, I noticed, another study about the Open Meeting Act again this year. Um, I will be paying attention to that one as well. Very interested. All right. Well, I think that brings oh, us... Oh, actually, one last thing I do want to raise, Andy, is that if there is an issue that you are interested in constituents have the ability to weigh into the interim study process because sometimes that is how interim study topics are generated or by um, lawmakers hearing an issue by a constituent and then wanting to learn more about that issue to do a deeper dive. So I definitely encourage people that now it's too late to weigh into the 2022 interim session process, but build relationship now with your lawmakers. So that way when the spring hits and lawmakers are in session and they need to decide on what studies to do in 2023, that you can reach out to your lawmaker and say, hey, this issue is happening in our community. And I think it would be a great interim study to do a deep dive understanding on it, right? Yeah. So there, that's one other place that ideas for interim studies come from. Yeah. And all the interim studies will be streamed online or you can go in person and watch. Sometimes that in that's interesting. And I'm sure you know there's usually some pretty decent coverage in the media about some of these particularly the ones that are more contentious. Some of them I think that are pretty clearly like designed to be for a specific purpose and it's for a specific bill. Maybe you don't generate the coverage, but again, as you said, I think it's worth scrolling through and seeing some of the titles and see if anything kind of piques your interest. 
Um, we will, I will link to those in the show notes, but you can go to the House and Senate websites, okhouse.gov, okaysenate.gov, and, uh, and find them there as well. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Our condolences to uh, Steve Bannon on his conviction. I'm just kidding. I, he clearly deserves it. All right, listeners, uh, thank you for being here. Pay close attention, listeners, to your email inboxes in the coming weeks. If you are interested in helping people register to vote, helping educate them on the issues or the candidates, and helping drive turnout this year, my gosh, we need your help. Go to letsfixthis.org slash volunteer. Sign up right there. Uh, I'll be sending out emails uh, a lot more frequently over the next few weeks. We're going to have lots of opportunities. Um, there's a bunch of events across the state, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, rural areas. And it's all kind of culminating, I think, on September 20th, which will be National Voter Registration Day. And that night, listeners, we're going to have another West Wing watch party at the Wheeler District. So now by the Wheeler Ferris Wheel, um, we did the same thing back in 2017. It was a ton of fun. Bring your blankets, your lawn chairs, your snacks, beverages. And we'll spread out. Uh, we'll have a panel discussion beforehand. And uh, then we'll watch an episode of the classic television show, The West Wing. And then looking farther in the future, on election night, November 8th, at the Tower Theater in Oklahoma City, we will be having the election night show. Once again, it's part, you know, tonight show. It's part election watch party. It's 100% fun. Um, I'll be there. Scott will be there. Bailey, I think, will be there. We'll have musical guests, I think, we have identified the musical guest today and it's going to be a band that's going to fill the stage and hopefully fill your hearts should be a lot of fun and in the meantime remember decisions are made by those who show up find a way to show up and help out uh, and help boost voter registration and voter turnout in oklahoma in 2022 have a good week